morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. Thank you. Gosh, today, I'm going to be honest with you, I love the rain. And so, like, when I woke up this morning, I was fired up. I heard rain, like, trickling off my, my roof. My wife and I are, are polar opposites. Like, on sunny days, my wife is like a morning person. And she jumps up and she loves the Jackson 5. And so she'll turn on ABC, you know, and I'm sitting there going, shut up, woman. But I woke up this morning, piled out of bed. I'm like, oh, there is a God. It actually rains in Southern California and goes against the song. And so I was fired up this morning. So anyways, good to have you here this morning. Uh, just maybe it's your first time. You haven't been here for a while. But what we're doing is we're studying through the book of James. And uh, if you've never read the book of James before, I would highly encourage it. I... Uh, I know both Francis and I have talked as we've taught through it, just how much we've fallen in love with this incredible book that, that James penned through the Holy Spirit. And uh, it has, I've got a new side of James in teaching through it. And uh, one of the things that I want to make sure that nobody in this room misses is this. A lot of times we read the book of James and we think it's like the book of Proverbs. It's like James saying something cool here, something cool here, and they're not connected. But as you read the book of James, the thing you have to understand is the book of James is connected perfectly. See, what it's like is this, is through the whole book of James, he's talking about what is authentic faith. What does true faith really, really look like? Not not that we want it to look like or not that we talk about, but literally, what does true, authentic faith look like? How does it live itself out? And so that's the common thread that runs all through the book of James And then it's so beautiful. One guy that I know put it this way. He said in that beautiful string of faith, James comes along and adds beautiful pearls and truths and he teaches about this amazing faith one by one by one. Until you get to the end of James and next week Francis is going to tie it all together and what you've got is this beautiful pearl necklace of truth that James has put together. And so as you read the book of James on your own, make sure you don't get caught up reading it like it's the book of Proverbs. It's not. But he is throwing out these truths. And and the one thing, please don't miss this. He wants to tell all of us, and especially these, these Christians that are being beat up at the time, look, this is what authentic faith looks like. If you really have faith, this is what your life will begin to look like. And today we're going to talk about integrity. And one of the things about integrity that I've, that I've noticed in, in, in my personal life and in those that I've come into contact with is that it is something, number one, that we don't naturally have, and it's something we have to fight for. We have to, on a daily basis, continually fight to have integrity. Because as you guys know, in our world and day, integrity is not something that's held high. We've, we've learned to lie and manipulate and tell kind of half-truths and, and shuck and jive our way through life and pretend to be somebody we're not with inauthenticity. And, and so that's why when he comes to this whole idea of integrity... It's almost like he's cutting across the grain and he says, look, one more thing about authentic faith is this integrity thing. Now, being a pastor, and I've only been a pastor for about, you know, about 12 years or so. But the one thing that God has blessed me with is I've run into all kinds of unique people. I've run into the poor guy that, you know, doesn't have anything. When I was in India, I'll never forget I was on the train. Chuck Bomar and I decided we were going to ride the third class train in India just to feel what it felt like. So we get on way outside of, of Bombay, Mumbai, and we start riding it in. I'm like, this is nothing. Third class train. Pretty soon people and more people and more people. And this one guy walks past me and I'm like, oh, I hope he doesn't ask me for money. And he didn't. He walked up and sat on my lap. 
<laughs> and God must have been laughing. That's right. You don't have to give him money, but now he's going to ride your lap for a, for a whole hour. I mean, he just sat down and was like, hey, man, what's up? And I'm like, hey. <laughs> I've got to meet even like rich and powerful people. My wife just uh, last year got to go with my mom and she got to sit in the vice president's office and talk to the vice president and, and all these different things and in between. But I met one guy at my last church, a real fascinating guy. I, I met his son first and, and we're in our youth ministry and we're getting ready to take kids to go play laser tag. And so we're signing up and all these things. And this kid walks up to me, when are we leaving? And all of a sudden the kid looks at me and goes, oh, I remember my dad invented laser tag. Sure, kid. My dad invented the telephone. I mean, you're just like, whatever. So I go outside and, and later on and, and this kid comes and gets me. Hey, my dad wants to talk to you. He wants to talk to you about, you know, when, where, all that other stuff. And so I'm talking to the dad and he goes, yeah, I remember inventing laser tag. Really? Okay. And he, I go, you know, I'm kind of a math and science geek. I go, like, do you have like a mad scientist lab or like, what do you have? And, and he goes, yeah. He goes, would you like to see it? So I went out and met him and we get out there and he's got like this government room that you can't go into. But I mean, he invented Teddy Ruxpin. I was like, oh, the talking bear. You're the guy. He invented the, he was one of the guys that invented the systems check for the space shuttle. He was also the guy and I started, I'm a math geek, you know, and, and he, he was one of the two guys that invented the square root button. I'm like, oh, thank you. But another guy I met, another really fascinating guy I met at my last church was, I lived in a military town. And in this military town, he was a, he was a psychologist and his whole job was to get young men and women prepared for the reality of killing somebody else. He looked at me and he said, look, and we were just kind of talking through this and he said, well, the reality of us in the United States is we're trained don't kill. Don't kill, don't kill, don't kill. And that's kind of changing like with the advent of like more like violent games. Kids aren't, they don't have the same conscience that uh, we did back before those crazy video games. Remember that? Um, but, uh, but literally though, what he had to do is he had to find that switch in the brain and he had to learn to teach them how it was okay to kill somebody else. And he was talking about one person in, in, in particular, the missile, the missile guys that would sit out in these holes in, in the middle of Nebraska and Wyoming and literally, if the message comes across for you to launch your nuclear weapon, you have to, without questioning, launch your nuclear weapon. Even knowing that hundreds of thousands of people will die by that act that you do. And as I talked to him, I started to realize something that, that literally, it's not natural. He had to reprogram the head. And in the book of Romans, it talks about just this idea in Romans 3 that every single one of us in this room, every one of us, in fact, it says has this need for reprogramming up in our head. All of us are sinners. And part of this thing about being a sinner that he's going to talk about is, is we struggle with integrity. It's not natural for us to, be in, to have integrity. That's why in the United States, there's a reason that we lay our hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. It's because a society that is untruthful needs that in order to try to somehow compose a person towards truthfulness and towards integrity. And one of the things that all of us in the room need, and James is going to talk about this, is we need to be reprogrammed to have integrity. And we're going to talk about the whole idea that the only way that happens is when I receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, because the only means by which I can start to have integrity 
is for the Holy Spirit to come into my life and teach me how to become, have integrity. But go with me to Job 2. I want to show you something. See, not only do I have to be trained to have integrity, but Job, in the book, Job chapter 2, it also deals with this other side of integrity. Job 2. Now what's just happened in Job's life is, is that in Job 1, Satan comes along to God and he says, or actually God says to Satan, Hey, I see you've been roaming the whole world. Have you seen my servant Job? He's righteous. And Satan basically says, Yeah, give me a chance at him. I'll show you how righteous he is. And he comes in and he takes away his family and his possessions and everything. And he's left with absolutely nothing. And, but yet Job, it says in there, it says he did not sin against God. Satan comes back a little bit later and he's in front of God again and, and he kind of goes through the same mantra of, hey, have you, have you seen my servant Job? And he's like, yeah, skin for skin, this whole concept. Look, strike him and he'll turn. But look what God says here in verse 3. God's talking to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And even after you struck him, is the idea, he still maintains his what? Integrity. Even after you've pushed him down and squashed him, he still has his integrity. Later on, Satan comes along and gives him boils and, and he's scraping it off with, with potsherds, they're called, with these broken pieces of, uh, of, pl- of plaster and he's scraping off these boils off of him and he's putting ashes all over himself. And in the middle of it, not only is Satan trying to get him to lose his integrity, but look at verse 9. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity hey thanks baby here i'm sitting here in my boils and ashes and boy you just encouraged me she says curse god and die lose your integrity see every day listen to me we are being bombarded on a daily basis lose your integrity lose your integrity cut corners do whatever it takes make the buck you know what go ahead and look at that do whatever it takes you 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 do whatever it takes kill your integrity even if you need to I mean, we, it is a battle, you know what I mean? Every stinking day to wake up and say, I am going to fight for my integrity. Now, why is integrity important? Go back with me to James 5. In James 5, he's just, he's just written to this group of people and he said, Look, I understand the elite and the aristocracy and the rich are pushing you down and, and they are oppressing you and, and you're getting frustrated. He even says to him, look, you're getting so frustrated. He's saying, don't complain. Don't, don't argue. And then he says to him something so interesting. He says, he says, be patient. Persevere. And he's throwing these words at him. And you would think after he says that, he would say, above all my brothers, pray. Above all my brothers, trust in Christ. Above all my brothers, and he would fill in the blank, but you would never imagine. Look what he says. Above all, my brothers, don't swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Isn't that weird? I mean, I'll be honest with you. For about a week and a half, I'm sitting there going, okay, James, why did you just write that? What in the world is going on? But the same thing happened with Job, that when he's sitting there being squashed while Satan's doing it, and even his three fans come along, and they don't help, do they? And even his wife's sitting there, man, just kill your integrity, curse God and die. In the middle of all that, James said, or Job said, no, I'm going to fight for my integrity. 
See, the most difficult time to hold your integrity is those times when you're being pressured in those times where you, you think, oh, I don't trust God. I need to cut the corner. I don't trust God. I need to cheat. I don't trust God. I need to lie. I don't trust God. And the whole thing that Job is saying is I refuse to lose my integrity because I trust God. I love him enough and I appreciate him enough. And that word that's used there, above all, my brothers, that James talks about in 5.12, what he's saying is this. Here's the first point to remember. Integrity matters greatly. Let me, and I'm just going to throw that out to you. Integrity matters greatly. Why does integrity matter greatly? Because it's that whole thing that integrity speaks of. It's that part of you that no one else sees but God. You know, all of us in here, and again, I'm going back to Romans 3. Every single one of us in here is playing a game. I don't care who we are. We have this facade that somebody's looking at. The clothes we wear, the people we hang around, the car that we drive, the job that we have, the, the kid, how we raise our kids, um, what we do. I mean, just fill in the blank. We all are trying to portray to somebody that we're somebody that maybe we're not. But you know when you're just lying in bed with nobody around and you're staring at the ceiling and you finally have your own thoughts? And suddenly you start to realize who you really are after playing a game all day long with people. See, the thing that James is talking, and he's going to get to here in just a second, is the most important thing about you is who you are when no one else is looking. Why? Because we tend by this secret law that I'd understand to start to look like who we really are deep down inside. In other words, if deep down inside I lust after women, eventually that's going to work its way out and it's going to work its way out into an affair. In other words, a guy doesn't wake up one morning and go, hey, I'm going to have an affair. That's what I want to do. I want to kill my family, kill the people around me. He just doesn't think that. In other words, something started deep within him that nobody else saw and it worked its way out there. And James is saying the most important thing about you is your integrity because that's that deep down inside thing that makes you you. And again, it's in light of this faith. Now, it's interesting. He connects it to the tongue. He connects it to this idea of swearing. And that's been like a major theme throughout the book. Like in James 119, 126, 2.12, 3.1-12, 4.11, and 5.9, it's this whole idea of authentic faith works its way out in the way I control my tongue and how that comes out. Now, I was trying to think through how does controlling my tongue trust God? And this is what I came to. And I'm going to start off with a simple example, then I'll move to this one. Has anybody, a husband, ever got this question? Your wife is standing in front of the mirror, and she says this to you. Does this make me look fat? (laughs) See, you're in a catch-22 there, aren't you? Because if you say yes, you might as well grab your blanket and go out to the couch. If you say no, and one of her girlfriends who's honest with her walks up and goes, oh, baby, those jeans really make you look fat. She's going to come home and say, you jerk. How dare you not tell me I look fat when I went out and looked fat in front of everybody else? Now, I don't know how you husbands deal with that, and I'm still in the middle of trying to process through that. But it's this idea on this simple end of it. Now what I've said matters in that situation. Now, raise the stakes a little bit. And all of a sudden you come to a point at which you know you've lost your integrity and you know somebody else has lost, has knows you've not been, had integrity with them. What are you going to do? A majority of people, and in fact there was a study I looked through, the question was, if you were caught in a lie, would you lie again to get yourself out? 
a majority of people said yes. See, that's revealing something deep down inside of us. See, I love American Idol for the first four weeks. The rest of it, I could care less. Because I love watching all the people that can't sing get up there and make fools of themselves. And I sit there with it thinking, oh yeah, and I'd say that what the judges said too. Now, everybody's mad at the judges, aren't they? Have you ever seen this? Like, this is the first time I've ever been in really pop culture since I was in high school ministry. But everybody's mad at the judges right now. You know what I wish they were mad at? I wish they were mad at the parents and friends that didn't tell them in the first place, you're terrible. (laughs) You're awful. (laughs) Right? I wish Oprah had parents on there of the ones that stunk. She's like, sit down. Why in the world would you let your kid get on there? What were you thinking? I mean, I just would love to have that happen one time. But no, we get mad at Randy and Paula and Simon because he was, they were honest with them. Now, they're mean. I ain't going to lie to you. That's the sadistic side of my personality. But that's what I'm talking about. We have this tendency to not want to tell the truth. And instead, we tell our kid, oh, you're the best singer in the world. Baloney. You're awful. Now, he moves on. He does this. James starts to attack this concept of the reliability of what we say. In other words, the reliability of what I say points back to the un, either the unreliability of my heart or the reliability of my heart. All right? And what he's going to do is he brings in this idea of swearing oaths. In other words, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by anything else, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Now, first of all, again, you look at that and you go, James, what are you talking about? But see, at that time, what happened was, is the the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, is that they literally had learned how to create a system that they could make an oath and break the oath and lie. And God was okay with it. Now, I'm going to show you this slide. Look up here. One guy named D. Edmund Hebert, uh, who, uh, who wrote about this, he said, look, in the Jewish Mishnah, which is just a compilation of decisions made by rabbis and the interpretation of various points of the law, it's just a book containing, uh, it's kind of like a commentary on the, on the Old Testament. A whole tract is devoted to the subject of oaths or swearing. Oaths in which the name of God was used were held to be binding, whereas those in which no direct mention of God was made were not held to be binding. Thus, the force of an oath that to all appearances seemed binding could be evaded by minute inaccuracies in the formula used. They developed the fine art of hiding the truth behind their pious oaths. What were they doing? Remember how as a little kid, you would walk up to a person and say, I'm telling the truth. Really? And they have to look back at you and go, yeah, but no crossies? No crossies. See? Well, you're crossing your leg. The whole idea was they're behind their back, they're crossing their fingers, and they're making this system in which they could lie. Now, in our culture, in, if you think about it just from the legal system, I mean, have you ever read through a legal contract on like you're about to get a credit card? It's like this bill is binding, if so, you're reading through it going, what in the world? Let me just tell you what that means. They want to protect themselves and get you. And that's what's happening here. In other words, they're swearing oaths that they never intend to keep. In other words, the lack of integrity in their heart is causing them to swear these things and lie. Now, a lot of times we'll look back at them and say, oh my gosh, those stupid Pharisees. How could they do it? They're so stupid. But let me throw something out to you. I do weddings all the time. And in the vows, I say this. I look at both the man and the woman. I say, without reservation, I enter this union, pledging my faithfulness, love, and submission to you and to Christ. 
I will allow Christ to be the heart of our marriage as the one that we will mutually honor, love, and serve. I take you to be my spouse, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love, trust, and serve, so long as we both shall live according to God's holy word. Amen. And the staggering reality of the church of Jesus Christ is that possibly in five to ten years, we will have more divorces in a, on a comparison-wise than the world. See, I think there's a lot of people that when they're standing in front of God with this person that they say they're going to marry, I think they mean it. But they mean it to the point until it causes me to have to hurt. See, it's this idea inside of marriage, and I get this all the time, is that suddenly when friction starts to happen in marriage, people will come to my office and they go, yeah, I think I'm going to leave my spouse. Really? Why don't you tell me why? Well, I think God wants me to be happy. Can you show me? <laughs> sorry, is that second Fleshalonians or third Fleshalonians? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, second hesitations. Oh, yeah. I'm like, well, where's that one? Well, Todd, it's like this. There's God's perfect will and his permissive will. Oh, really? I can see God up on heaven handing down the Ten Commandments to Moses. First, Moses, my perfect will... And then I will give you my permissive will. No. See, what we do is, is once things start to get tough, and that's what James is talking about to these people that are being oppressed, is the moment marriage starts to get like this, there's always one person that wants to go, okay, I'm out of here. And I'm going to figure out a way out. I'm going to find a loophole. Oh yeah, I was crossing my fingers when I made those vows. I want to get out of this. Suddenly, like many men or many women, they'll start to harbor feelings towards another person well my wife she's she's terrible anyways she's a witch i hate to go home to her so i'm gonna have an affair with this woman we justify it well my husband doesn't love me anyways he loves his work and so i can have this affair and we justify in our head i can go ahead and do wrong and lose my integrity and we can justify it and go there but we don't just stop there do we how about in the workplace i was thinking through this the other day When you took a job as a Christian, did you realize, according to Colossians 3.22-24, through that you not only promised that person, contract-wise, that you were going to work your tail off and do the best for that business, not because he's so wonderful or she's so wonderful, but because Colossians 3 says, I'm not working for you, I'm working for God anyways. In other words, when I show up to the workplace, my integrity is on the line. I show up and I do my best and I work hard, not because I'm trying to get that guy money that's my boss, but because I have a greater boss, Jesus Christ, and I do my work that says heartily, heartily unto the Lord. Instead, people sit around on their computers sometimes. They play solitaire or spider... uh, What? Spider... Okay, those are the people right there. Good. Praise the Lord. Thank you for confession. Good. Is there a boss in here? They're right over here. But it's this idea that, right, in other words, I got paid to do a job and I'm sitting there going, huh, online poker. Or I cheat on my time card. He's a terrible boss anyways. Doesn't give me vacation. He doesn't give me vacation. He doesn't give me a raise in two years. I'll show him a raise. It's those kinds of things. How about if you're a boss? 
Did you realize that according to James 5, 1 through 6, that you have a mandate to care for your employees? A mandate to care for them. A mandate to make sure that these people that you have that are underneath you are cared for in such a way that they're able to have a living wage. Now, you can't help it if they're lazy. You can't help it if they're spending their money irrationally, okay? I'm just saying you are to have an integrity that pays them what they're worth. The other thing I've noticed with guys that own companies is they have this tendency to promise to get a job done and then to make excuses for why they didn't get it done. That's called integrity. I've seen guys that own businesses that, that, that sign a contract and suddenly they realize it's going to cost them more so they try to bail out of the contract. Let me show you something. Go to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. Look at verse 1. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary or who may live on your holy hill? And he's talking about integrity here because the next thing he says in verse 2 is he says, He whose walk is blameless, the integrity one. Who is the one that has integrity? Who's the one that controls his tongue? Who's the one that speaks truth from the innermost part of his heart? And then look at down at verse 4. Look at the very last part of that. See where he says, who keeps his oath even when it what? Hurts. That's the man of integrity or the woman of integrity. It's that husband or wife that when it really hurts in marriage, they keep their vow. When it really hurts and I'm an employee and I have a terrible boss, I keep my vow. When I'm a boss and it hurts, I keep my vow. But here's another simple one. Have you ever told somebody on a Saturday that you hear, hey man, I could really use some help moving? You go, sure man, I'd love to be there. What time? Well, nine o'clock is when we're going to start. You know, I'll have donuts, coffee, as if somehow that's going to make it better. <laughs> and then the next day you get this phone call. Hey Todd, you're never going to believe this. I got tickets on the 50-yard line for the UCLA-USC game. <gasps> What time are you leaving? Nine. <laughs> hey, bud, I know I told you I was going to help you. The kids are sick. Let me tell you. They're sick. Whew. Listen to them. <laughs> See what I'm telling you? And off you go to the game. Integrity. Doing something when you know you want to be at the game, but you've promised somebody that you would be somewhere. There are two things in the last about 20 years that were created by Satan himself. Cell phones and email. Integrity is returning phone calls. And I confess to you, I'm just saying these two actually are probably two of my weaknesses. Suddenly you have 100, 150, 200 emails. You look at them and you're like, do they really need a response? Is their marriage really falling apart? I'm kidding. (laughs) That phone call that you don't want to return, that's integrity. Taxes. Oh, taxes. They're coming up, aren't they? So I don't really have documentation of my mileage. Okay, so I really don't have those receipts, but no one checks anyways. Okay, but yeah, the government, they soak us anyways, so I'll just kind of take these write-offs. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ hid it. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Now let me add to Jesus' command. 
but not a penny more. Right? <laughs> you only need to give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But when Caesar demands it, you give him every bit in what it's done. I also was thinking through statements like this. Can I be completely honest with you? Have you not been honest? <laughs> to be totally honest, Todd, again, <laughs> you haven't been honest with me? How about this one? I guarantee it. So in the past, you haven't. Does this make me look fat? <laughs> Won't go there. Little kids, I was funny, I was at a little kid party yesterday and a dad was sitting there talking about a, a kid and did you go over there? And he looks back at his dad, he goes, no, I didn't. And then he used this word that kids use young. I promise. Somehow that's the magic bullet that I wasn't over there. Little liar. <laughs> or they also learn words like, cross my heart, hope to die, what? Stick a needle in my eye. Oh, well, cool. Then you're telling me the truth. I'm good on that. I give you my word. Oh, great. Did you not before? Or how about this one? Those of us that I was married in the early mid-90s and also all my friends were, so I had to sit through weddings and I was that guy standing up on that hard floor going, oh my gosh, get it over with. Not my own wedding, of course. I was absorbed in the moment. But there was one song that was sung by this terrible boy band called All for One. I swear. I swear. By the moon and the stars in the sky. I'll be there. I swear. Like the shadow that's by your side. I'll be there. For better, for worse. Till death do us part. I'll love you with every beat of my heart. <laughs> I swear. I would love one time at a wedding for just one guy to look and say, you know what, minus all the flowers, minus all the beautiful stuff, minus all the words, minus all that stuff, today I make a vow and my yes is my yes and I've decided to marry you and I promise you that's it. I mean, some people have wrote the most beautiful vows at their weddings. I have one that they wrote. I mean, seriously, I'm sitting there at one wedding, these vows. I'm like, that's beautiful, man. That's good. <laughs> Divorced. Divorced. That's what I'm talking about. It's this idea of having the integrity to keep it. Now, let me just, let me say this to you. A person who regularly has to use phrases... Let me be honest with you. Can I be honest? Generally has a problem with integrity. Really. I would say if you have to qualify your words with statements like that, that probably means you have a problem with integrity. And I would say that if you're one of those people, if I can be honest with you, <laughs> but if you're one of those people, you need to look at integrity. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Let me just give you four applications off this. All right? Number one is this. One of the things that I think all of us can do to help us with integrity is to sensitize yourself daily with the horrors of deception. Sensitize your heart. In other words, that means when you wake up, because if you really believe the battle for integrity, the battle for authenticity, the battle to, to live out deep within me a heart that truly is in love with God, you need to convince yourself that today, lack of integrity 
God hates it. Every day. It's waking up and going, God, cutting corners in my business, you hate. God, uneven scales, he talks about in the Old Testament, you hate it. Here's another one, second one. Stop qualifying your words. Mean what you say and say what you what. Say what you mean. Another one is, is become a person that follows through with your commitments. If you say you're going to be somewhere, if you say you're going to do something, stick to your first commitment. Always stick to your first commitment. Even when it, what? Hurts. Here's the last one. I Kind of at the beginning, I qualified all of us lack integrity. That means, can I just be honest with you? We're going to fail. Okay? We're going to fail with integrity. But let me tell you something. Failure is not a lack of faith in... Failure is a lack of faith in God, but it's not the end. How we fail after it's over is very important. That means this. If you fail, own your sin and repent. If you fail, if you fail in integrity, in fact, the more and more you start owning your sin when you fail and repenting, trust me, the less and less your integrity starts to sway. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, one thing is this. If you know that you're saying something false, correct it immediately. If you're talking to somebody and you're saying something false, just stop and go, whoa. You know what? I'm going to have to ask you to forgive me because what I just said to you was untrue. And I'm going to ask you to please forgive me and I want to make sure that I say this correctly because I want to make sure that my integrity between you and I is correct. If you do that with your wife, with your kids, with those that you work with over and over, pretty soon you're not going to want to have to look at them because it's, isn't that awkward? You're looking at that person and saying, hey, I just lied to you. Woo, hey, but that's water in the bridge, right? No, but to own up to it. If you're giving the wrong impression, you're not quite telling a whole lie kind of a half-truth, kind of a white lie, kind of like white adultery and white stealing and white not honoring your father and mother. I'm just a white lie. Man, straighten that out as soon as possible. In other words, we are the masters of half-truths. That is lack of integrity. But I don't want to stop there because if I stop there, I'm going to confess to you, all I'll get you to do is a set of do's and don'ts. And this is not about do's and don'ts. And this last little chunk of 512 is the absolute key to this passage. He says something really fascinating when he says, or you will be condemned. Now on one side of it, that seems harsh. I'll be condemned. Now why would he say something like that? That word condemned, at first when I was studying, I thought, oh, what it means is judged. You'll be, you'll be disciplined. Uh, God will spank you if you do this. It's kind of like a Hebrews 12. God disciplines those he loves. That's a true thought, but that's not what he's talking about here. This word that he's using here is what's called, it's a Greek word and it's called chrysis. It speaks of judgment or condemnation, but here's the idea. It never once speaks of discipline. It always speaks of condemnation as towards hell. Now feel the weight of that for a second. Now, are you trying to tell me, Todd, that liars go to hell? That's not what I'm saying. See, listen to me. What you say does not save you. But when you're saved, what you say changes. What you say does not change you. But when you're saved, what you say changes. Now, what do I mean? 
See, when I am honestly, when Jesus Christ, when I honestly have an authentic faith relationship with him, when I've come to know him as my personal Lord and Savior, everything changes. See, when I was four, my mom told me I said a prayer when I was sitting with her. Don't remember it to save my life. When I was seven, I was in Awana, and I saw these kids leaving the room. I'm like, huh, I wonder what they're doing. So I raised my hand. Sure, I want to be saved. Out the door I went, and I'm kind of looking around. I wasn't saved that day. When I was 15, there was this hot chick at camp. I'm talking hot. Do you want to come to Jesus? I don't know. Is she? If she knows Jesus, sign me up. Where do I go? But it wasn't until I was 21 that suddenly all these amazing truths, this faith, this authentic faith that James talked about came in and Jesus Christ changed my heart. And when he changed my heart, suddenly my mouth changed, my actions changed, my thoughts changed. Everything began to change about me. There's an old Negro spiritual that goes like this. My hands got new and my feet did too when I came to know Jesus. See, what happens is, is when you truly know Jesus Christ, the reality of what happens to you is, is that now God begins to change you to look like His Son, Jesus Christ. First John, if you ever want a great book to study that talks about this idea of the changed person, that's what it's all about. But go with me to Romans 8. I want to show you something. James has just said, you'll be condemned. But there's a beautiful passage in Romans 8 that I want you just to, I want it to sit on you for a little bit. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say this again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you realize the opposite is, there is now condemnation for those who aren't in Christ Jesus. See, James and Paul are actually saying the same thing from different angles. James is saying, there is condemnation for those not in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the whole point is, is every single person in this room, our goal is to get into Christ Jesus. I want to know Him, love Him. I want to begin to start a relationship with Him because as I begin to join in Him, as I join with Him in this relationship, there is now therefore no condemnation. Look at uh, verse 10. And if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit which Jesus Christ promised in John 17, which now he comes into my life, and he comes into my life because of a righteousness that God gives me because of Jesus Christ. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What he's talking about here is is when Jesus Christ comes in and saves me, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead can give me the capacity to begin to gain integrity. He can give me the capacity to say truthful things. Todd, you don't understand. I'm a habitual liar. Then you need to know Jesus. Because Jesus can change you. It's that whole idea that he's speaking about here is when I come to know Christ, everything changes. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Let me explain to you something. When you get baptized, what you're doing is this. When you enter into these waters, you have already said to Jesus Christ, I want to follow you with everything that I am. See, on the day that I got married, and I'm not wearing my ring today because it got squashed and it doesn't fit on my finger, and so this makes a bad illustration. When I got married, just because I put a ring on my finger, it didn't make me married. There's all kinds of men and women that have put rings on their fingers that are divorced now. What baptism is, is this beautiful thing in which you say, look, the reality of my faith, I am so in love with Jesus Christ that like when a husband and wife exchange rings, we enter into this baptismal and we say to Jesus Christ and we say to everyone else as witnesses, I want to have a relationship with the God of the universe. And in it then, God does this amazing thing. He says, I will be faithful. I will be the faithful daddy. I will be the faithful father. I'm going to make you one of my children. I am going to totally give all my blessings upon you as a good dad. And one of the blessings I might have to give you is discipline. That means if you go the wrong way, I might have to spank you. And in a beautiful thing, just like when my wife and I exchanged rings, we said to the world, I'm hers and she's mine. Baptism is jumping in there in the same way and saying, I'm his, but uniquely. Look at Romans 8.29. Watch this. For those whom God foreknew, in other words, those he knew that would come to know him, he predestined them to come to know him. And look what it is there. To be conformed to the likeness of his son. See, when I choose to follow Jesus, I don't choose to follow Jesus because I want to avoid hell. I choose to follow Jesus because I want to be like Jesus. He who began a good work in you is going to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. See, the whole, God's whole goal in your life is to make you look like Jesus Christ. And look at the last part of it. With the purpose being that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Not only is he going to save you, but now you are going to be called a brother of the Son of God as God adopts you into his family. My wife and I have been uh, doing foster care. You guys know that. And we're moving towards possibly adopting. And I thought, gosh, I'm getting a picture into what God did when he adopted me. Because when we first got this baby, let me just be honest with all of you. Just kidding. Just kidding. Every baby besides the one that you have is ugly. Okay, I'm just telling you. Every baby when they're first born is ugly. And if anybody comes into you and goes, oh, your baby's so cute when you're in hospital, look at them, you liar. (laughs) They're beautiful to me, but not to you. You don't have to lie to me. But when she first was born, she wasn't beautiful. But the amazing thing was, is that now all of a sudden, we're going to bring her into our family. In a beautiful way, God, and through this adoption, brings us into his family. And see, not because of a set now of do's and don'ts and do this and don't do that. I now desire to be truthful because I love my daddy. I'm in love with him. 
I'm in love with him with everything that I have. And not only that, all of you in this room that know Jesus Christ, you are my brothers and sisters because you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I do not want to lie to you because you are the loved ones of God. To lie to you would be vile and evil. I want to speak truth in love, it talks about in Ephesians 4. And I don't want to lie to the world because if I lie to the world, that's not just bringing a bad name on me, it's bringing a bad name on who? God, the one that I love. See, I don't want people to leave here and go, okay, dang it, Todd, I'm going to do a list of do's and don'ts. I'm going to get integrity. Look, you don't have to get integrity. You have to find God and get God. And when you find God and know God and love God, integrity finds you. I start to walk like Jesus and act like Jesus and everything about me starts to to resemble this amazing Savior that died for me. And out of that comes integrity. And we're about to go to the Lord's Supper right now. Now, what's the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is kind of like what every marriage needs to do on a continual basis. You need to remind each other that you love each other. Because you can fall out of love, can't you? Can I say something? Marriages aren't falling apart. Integrity is falling apart, which is causing marriages to fall apart. And when we come up and we take the Lord's Supper, one of my biggest fears is everybody does this. Okay, I grab my bread. I go back to my chair. And we go through penance. Don't do penance. Do you realize that that body was broken and that blood was spilt? Jesus Christ said, I came so that you might have joy and joy more full. I'm not saying don't treat this as a solemn reality, okay? Please don't treat this flippantly. But I'm getting sick of frowns when we take communion. We should be the smilingest people in the world. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. Can I tell you something? You have a relationship with the king of the universe. You're being made like his son, Jesus Christ. One day you're going to go home and spend eternity with him. And oh, by the way, you're not going to hell. We should be going, oh, this is cool. I do love you. I love you. Take that bread today and understand it is the precious body that was bruised and beaten for you. But instead of frowning, could you smile? And when we take that blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins and that blood was shed for you. But when you hold that juice, that cup in your hand, smile. And here's the other thing. Don't look down. In fact, be weird and look around at each other. Did you know communion is supposed to be a y'all thing? All y'all are coming and I'm coming and we're going to come before the throne of Jesus Christ. All of us all. Y'all. And we're going to tell God how much we love him because he's taking an unintegrity man and making him more integrity because he's making him the image of Jesus Christ. When you grab that juice and you grab that bread, please don't hear me saying be unsolemn. Be solemn. But would you smile? The other thing is this. The other thing I see is people doing this. Oh, dear God, I didn't realize we were going to take communion today, so I want to tell you, I've, I've sinned, I've sinned, I'm a terrible person, I don't know what I'm going to, and I don't even know what I've done, but I know I've done some terrible, so please forgive me because I don't want to get condemnation for taking this thing, because it's just this thing where people go through. Listen to me. Have integrity, and if your heart's not right, 1 Corinthians 11 says, let it pass. It's okay. We can be authentic here and have integrity here. Somebody, if they look at you funny, 
Smile at them and say, you judge. No, don't. But just (laughs) smile at them. And you might even tell them later, yeah, just my heart wasn't ready to take communion today. And I don't want to do a quick microwave version of telling God I'm sorry. Let it pass. But more importantly, whether you let it pass or you take today, these people in here, it says, for God so loved the world. Man, every day before I preach and I come up in front of you, I beg God, give me a heart and a passion for this group of people in here that are bought with your precious blood, Jesus. I want to know them, I want to love them, and I want to bring your your truth to them so that we might know you better. And in knowing you better, you change our lives and give us the integrity and and the compassion that we need. Amen?